I will be forever the mess. You're the king of kings, <laughs> There's always a pecking order. The little peckers never mess with the big peckers. So I'm a rooster, and he's a chicken, so to speak. This anniversary edition of the Bodybuilding Legends podcast is brought to you by our Patreon donors. If you're interested in becoming a Patreon donor, you can go to our official website, bodybuildinglegendshow.com, and the information will be in the upper right-hand corner. All right, welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Bodybuilding Legends podcast, where we talk to the legends of bodybuilding, and we also talk about the history of bodybuilding. I'm your host, John Hansen. And as I just mentioned, today is our fifth anniversary episode. We have been doing this Bodybuilding Legends podcast since July 5th, 2017. So today we are celebrating our fifth anniversary of the podcast. So thank you to all of you listeners who have supported the show since the very beginning, or if you're just a new listener, thank you for supporting the podcast. I cannot believe we are on our fifth year So here we are, guys. Um, This will be part one of our fifth anniversary show. I'm sure we will have at least a part two. We have 240 shows in the the tank. So I was looking over all the shows that we did. And, uh, of course, we got some great content, some great guests, some great stories. So I picked out about eight different shows for this episode. And I tried to pick out some stuff that we've never heard uh, before on the anniversary show, I went back over all our four years of the anniversary shows we've had already and tried to get some different guests because we've had so many guests over the years. As you know, when we started the Bodybuilding Legends podcast, I started it as a season. So we had different seasons. We had a season where we were doing a pumping iron anniversary and we were talking about everything related to the pumping iron movie. We had another season where we were talking about the Nava Mr. Universe. Uh, another season that talked about the 1981 Mr. Olympia. We had another season that talked about the 1990 Mr. Olympia, which was the drug-tested Mr. Olympia. So that was an idea I had when we started the podcast. And then since then, the last couple of years, we've just been running shows continuously each week. I don't really have any seasons anymore. It's too hard to organize because it's really hard just to get somebody on the show now because we've been doing it for so long and it's hard to get guests. So it's hard to organize the season that much ahead of time. And, of course, I'm busy, and I've got other things going on. So I just do the shows as we can, and we really don't have any seasons anymore. But having said that, I was going over all the seasons we had and all the shows we had to pick out the ones for this podcast. So coming up on this edition of the fifth anniversary show, we are going to have some interviews with Chris Dickerson, Rest in peace, Chris. Chris passed away last year in 2021, right around Christmas time. And so, of course, I thought it would be great to hear from Chris Dickerson. We did a couple interviews with Chris, fortunately, while he was still with us. So we're going to start the show off with that. And then one of my favorite guests, of course, Boyer Co. We're going to hear from the first interview I did with Boyer, which I think is going back to 2015, because before I started the Bodybuilding Legends podcast, Going back to, I think, 2014 is when I started doing interviews with some of the bodybuilding legends, and I was just putting them on my YouTube channel, and then I got the idea for doing the podcast a couple years later. So this is the first interview I ever did with Boyer, and this is an excerpt of the interview where he talks about meeting Arthur Jones for the first time. 
And then our next clip is going to be talking about Sean Roden. We had Jerry Branham and Phil Williams on last year, and this was after Sean Roden, the 2018 Mr. Olympia winner, passed away from a heart attack. So uh, we had a two-part show about Sean and about just all the deaths in bodybuilding. And so Jerry and, and Phil were talking about steroid use and bodybuilding com- today compared to how it used to be. Another friend of mine who passed away over the last couple of years, two years ago, was Peter McGuff. So I have an interview that I did with Peter and Wayne Galash. This was when Wayne was visiting Florida from Australia, of course. Wayne lives in Australia. And him and I went to visit Peter and his wife, Anne, at their home. And we spent the afternoon there and we did an interview. So I've got an excerpt from that. That was back in 2018, two years before Peter passed away. Then I've got another great interview, which uh, I haven't revisited the show in a while, and it was really fun to listen to again. This was with some of my Chicago friends, Al Yakich, Terry Strand, and Bob Guida, who also passed away last year. Bob was the 1966 Mr. America winner, and he was a big training partner of Sergio Oliva when Sergio first moved to Chicago from Cuba. So I had all three of these guys sit around, and we did a phone call with them, and we had some great stories about the old days of bodybuilding in Chicago with Sergio and also with Rock Stonewall. So you guys are really going to enjoy this. What else we got? Oh, and then I did another interview with a couple of Chicago friends of mine, Glenn Kinnear, who was the 1986 Mr. America winner, and Larry Bernstein, who won the short class at the 1983 Mr. America Uh, I talked to both Glenn and Larry about bodybuilding, and we talked about today's bodybuilders versus the old-time bodybuilders, and we also talked about Tim Belknap. And then the final clip we're going to hear today is from Barry DeMay, and I did an interview with Barry a few years ago in Las Vegas when I was out there for the Mr. Olympia, and in this clip, Barry's going to talk about the Mr. Universe and Mr. World competitions that he competed in. So we got all that coming up in a minute. You guys are really going to love this fifth anniversary show. Sorry I missed last week's show, but I had a head cold all week, so I was not able to put together the anniversary show, but I think it is gone now. I was going through it all week, so a lot of stuff going around now. COVID is coming back. Everybody's getting COVID. I'm doing online training with ProPhysique.com, and a lot of my clients have had COVID. It's crazy. It's like every week somebody's getting it, so be careful out there, guys. Protect yourself, because it seems like this is really coming around. And I want to mention the Muscle Maturity Podcast. I don't know if you guys have heard this yet. This is a new podcast I'm a part of every week. It's with Old School Labs, who is one of my sponsors. And we are doing it on YouTube. It is with me and Samir Banut and Nick Trigilli. And we do the show every Tuesday. So if you're interested in checking it out, we talk about the old days of bodybuilding, but we also talk about what's going on in today's world of bodybuilding. So that is on YouTube under Old School Labs YouTube channel. And that's up every Tuesday. And I think I mentioned last week or our last show that I've been buying some old bodybuilding magazines. I've been purchasing a lot of old Ironman and some old muscular development magazines from the 60s and 70s. So I've been having a blast reading these. Uh, I got some from a guy on Facebook who gave me a great deal on some of his old magazines. But since then, I've been going on eBay and buying some more. So this is my new addiction now. I'm going to also be selling some on eBay as well because I've got a lot of doubles from uh, some of my old magazines. So I'm going to sell some Ironmans and some Flex magazines that I have uh, extra ones of. So if you're on eBay and you're looking for magazines, check that out. 
did not get any emails this week. We have an interview coming up with Wayne Galash that we'll be playing after the anniversary shows are over with. So however many parts I do this in, I think I'll probably have at least two parts of the anniversary show. And then I did a pretty long interview with Wayne Galash where we talked a lot about his career and about his memories of some of the old contests he saw. Wayne is really an icon in the bodybuilding world for his efforts in photographing and videotaping a lot of the legends in bodybuilding going all the way back to the 70s. And uh, it's interesting buying some of these old magazines. I've seen a lot of Wayne's pictures in some of these magazines. So he's got some great stories to tell. So you guys are going to enjoy that interview with Wayne Galash, which will be coming up in a couple weeks. And I've been adding some uh, more videos on my YouTube channel from some previous episodes of the Bodybuilding Legends podcast. Last couple of weeks, I put up the interview I did with Janet Tech, who was a great female bodybuilder, women's bodybuilder of the 1980s. Janet won her pro card in 1988, and then she competed in the Miss Olympia a few times. So that was really a good interview. I forgot how good of an interview that was. And when I started researching Janet and I found some old videos of her doing her posing routines, man, she was an amazing bodybuilder. All natural, never took steroids. She was very outspoken against women taking steroids. Uh, Rachel McLish was one of her idols. So that's a really good interview. So check that out on my YouTube channel under my name, John Hansen, when you get a chance. And just this last weekend, I put up an interview with Rick Newcomb, who wrote the book, The Magic of Lifting Weights. And Rick had a great experience in bodybuilding. He trained with Bertle Fox for a couple of years in 1983 and 84. And uh, he got to know Arnold when uh, Arnold was promoting his book, Education of a Bodybuilder, way back in 1977. And Rick also trained under Franco um, back in 1981. Franco was training Rick. And uh, Rick, uh, Rick ended up being a model for one of Franco's books, which was The Businessman's Workout. So I just put that video up, the video interview up this weekend. So check that out when you get a chance. All right, guys, let's get to our fifth anniversary, part one. And we are going to start off with an interview with Chris Dickerson. This is an interview I did with Chris several years ago. And in this interview, Chris is going to talk about how he got started in bodybuilding, training under Bill Pearl, so when he went to Bill Pearl's gym. And then in the second part, Chris is going to talk about competing in the AAU Mr. America and the NABA Universe back in 1970. You're, uh, like to talk about your career. I know that you started training a little bit later than a lot of guys did. Uh, some guys start, we just did an interview with Rich Gaspari not too long ago, and he started working out when he was like 13 years old. But My, you started a little bit later in life, right? A lot later. I started bodybuilding after college. Okay. Uh, 23 years of age. Hmm. And, and uh, I had always put it off because the image of being a bodybuilder was not complimentary then. Yeah. And who wants to be a muscle head and got all those muscles and you're trying to make up for a lack of something or you doubt your sexuality or you, you got a small implant there, whatever. <laughs> I hope I'm not being <laughs> deeped out, but all of those, and they all become muscle bound when you're old. I, I heard all of them. Yeah. So it's just that I thought, okay, I've done my college. I want to do this. And uh, then I saw an ad in uh, Mr. America magazine Bill Pearl had just recently opened a gym there in L.A., where I was at the time, okay. on Manchester Boulevard. They gave the address, and that was all I needed. Hmm. 
So so you got into bodybuilding because you saw a picture of Bill Pearl then, basically, right? Right. His, his one of the legends. I had been I'd been following the magazine's job. Okay. But here's a legend who's opening a gym just about a mile and a half from my house, according to the address. Wow. Didn't have a car then. I was one of the few people in L.A. without a car, if you can imagine. <laughs> Took us two transfers to get there. And I walked into this gym, and I was so nervous. Phil, I could have <laughs> I thought I was going to pee on myself. <laughs> so walking there, it's all these huge guys. Of weights are pounding on the floor, and I thought, let me get out of here. <laughs> but somehow, Bill saw me, and he beckoned me to come in. Come in, fellow. <laughs> That's a bad imitation of him. So I said, oh, Mr. Pearl, my name is Chris, and I want to be Mr. America someday. It just blurted out. <laughs> I don't know what made me say that. He says, and he still remembers this. This is what's funny. He said, well, you and a lot of other people, Chris. Let's just start and see what happens. <laughs> he was very tactful with me and very patient. Now, I saw an earlier picture of you, Chris, and it looks like your calves were huge and your, the rest of your body was like a normal person. Exactly. I was a good soccer player. Okay. The boarding school, a Quaker boarding school in Ohio, and the teachers were mostly from England. And soccer was the game, what we call football. Mm-hmm. Well, I was a four-year soccer man in high school, and so they were still there, those cats. Hmm. <laughs> so and how I, long when you started training? Well, let's talk about your training with Bill Pearl because I think that's interesting. Uh, yes. I know Bill trained a lot of people, and he trained a lot of champions, such as yourself. Um, so what kind of training program did he have you on? I, I heard Bill always like – trained every part of your body. I mean, he was a real stickler for that. He works from the ground up and or from the inside out, however you put it. Mm -hmm. And I learned that the hard way. He wrote out a Then your gym membership included your program being written out by the owner. So he had these index cards, and he did my measurements, and he programmed out for me, and I had to follow it. The language is totally foreign to me. Incline dumbbell lateral. I said, what the heck is that? <laughs> I go to Bill, I said, oh, excuse me, Mr. Pearl, call me uh, Mr. Pearl. What is it? And, and he I'll show you. He was very patient. <laughs> Walked me on the gym floor, and I was really embarrassed. It was, felt like everybody was looking. And he said, and he would do it for me. And then I would do it. And then people would snigger, some of them, because I was such a beginner. Mm-hmm. He said, being a beginner and knowing nothing made me his best student because I had nothing to unlearn. Mm-hmm. I had bad habits. Right. He was, yeah, he worked me from the inside out. I had to do a lot of stumbling. And my, I had no abdominals, just one smooth belly. <laughs> I wasn't in bad shape, but I just had no abdominals. I hadn't developed them. Mm-hmm. So I, he worked me and I, oh yes, I'll never forget he had me do what we call chins. Some call pull-ups. I would say chins. Right. He wrote on the index card, four sets, ten reps. <laughs> now, I could do maybe one. <laughs> so I said, Bill, I said, I can't do but one. He said, okay, well, you'll have to do one set of, no, you'll have to do 40 sets of one. <laughs> so I'm under the training bar forever. And I remember this one guy, Jerry, 
Wallace, who's always kidding me, and he walked by me one day, and I'm standing on the chilling bar. He says, are you still here? <laughs> I said, yes, I'm afraid so. <laughs> I had to do it all. I had to do it. He would not allow you to not do the repetition. Wow, that's great. Now, what was your genetics like, uh, Chris? Like, how fast did you respond to weight training, and how fast did your physique build up? Well, I was really like... it. It was like a dog would take to water. Mm-hmm. As it goes, I was a real natural. Yeah. Short. I've always been short and rather muscular, a, a type. Yeah. And so uh, I just took to it. And uh, I would, everything would show because I'm 23, remember? Mm-hmm. I'm a teenager. And Bill would say, well, the fact that you're 23 is to your advantage because your body is totally mature. Whatever you add on it will show up. Yeah. So it's true. And I was very muscular, and I would just take to it. I'm And about a year and a half, I was competing. The Nava universe, like the AAU America, still had the prestige. The Olympia then was kind of a new competition. And people sort of, in the sport, knew it was sort of designed specifically for Larry Scott. Because he had no place to go. Yeah. The Olympia didn't have the prestige it came in later down. Right. So, no, I wasn't drawn to that yet. Yeah, that's true. A lot of the, like I said, the newcomers, they may not realize how big the Mr. America was, but also the NABA Mr. Universe was a huge competition. And if you look at the list of winners in that show, it was amazing. And they came from all over the world. Yeah. And uh, it was that was really, it was my first passport ever in my life. Oh, yeah. Over there in 1970. And at the time, New York, uh, since I was their AAU winner as Mr. America, mm-hmm. he actually sponsored the trip for my going to London. So they were behind me. Okay. That was quite a trip. And seeing London and all of that was just such an education. Yeah, you got to love that, huh? Meeting bodybuilders from Greece, from all over Haiti, mm-hmm. uh, South America, Spain, England, of course. It was really something. And I always heard that was a, a very fairly judged event, you know, the Navi Universe. Yes, they liked my physique over there. Uh-huh. Because they go for the symmetry and then proportion, not just for the size. Okay. And they're very polite audience. And, uh, I've never heard them boo anybody. Hmm, really? Yeah, never. Not any English audience have I heard a boo from. And then the the prejudging there too, Chris, I've always seen pictures of that. It was sort of strange because it was like the judges were sitting in a room right there and the the bodybuilders were right in front of them. It wasn't on stage like it is today. Exactly. We're on the same level, flat floor, and uh, the competitors were just a few feet from them. Yeah. There was no spot. Right. It's for the show. And then when they say show, that meant to present to the public. Yeah. That's what that meant. But they wanted to see you literally, not, no, not literally, they wanted to see you naked. Yeah. That is without the spot. Right, right. So you couldn't hide weak points. Right. Nothing could be overshadowed or highlighted. So that was you. Yeah, you had to be a great bodybuilder to win first place there. It was fair, Judge. No music. Yeah. 
In fact, the audience was told to be quiet because huh. they didn't want any favoritism. So the audience had to shut up. I don't think that would have worked in New York. <laughs> we weren't in New York then. But it was a great experience, and I've learned from all of them the differences and the variations, even the different associations and how they judge. Right. And then uh, in 1974, you went back to the NAVA universe and you won the overall at the uh, pro level, the pro NAVA universe. Exactly. That was quite a thrill. And uh, I was very confident that year. Hmm. It must have shown. Yeah. And you beat Boyer Co. that year also, right? Uh, I forgot, did I? Yeah, he was second, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, okay. Yeah, as the winner, I'd say it was a wonderful experience. It was a wonderful experience. So you and Boyer had a pretty big rivalry from the very beginning then, right? Right when you started competing at the national level all the way up into the pros and the, uh, and the yes. ISPB. Yes, that's true, John. That's true. He was a product of, well, he really wasn't a product of Arthur Jones. Arthur Jones would take some credit, but Boyer was his own man, and he had been trained by Red Laurel a former Mr. America. Right, in Louisiana. In Louisiana. So, but he had those incredible arms that were scary. I mean, nobody had arms, no amateur had arms like Boyer Cogan. Right, right. He was outstanding and a good competitor and a good sport. Where did you have him beat, Chris, in the legs? In the legs because of the shape and then my thigh cuts and and the abdominal there, yeah. Okay. Uh, boy, abdominals were never outstanding. Right. My great, but they got they got a lot better. Right. All right. Great to hear from Chris Dickerson, man. I'm so glad I got a chance to interview him. He was such a gentleman, so well spoken. So I'm really, really grateful we got a chance to speak to Chris a few times before he passed away last year. And rest in peace, Chris. We will always remember you, of course. All right, this next interview is from Boyer Co. And as I mentioned before, this is the first interview I did with Boyer. And in this part of the interview, Boyer talks about when he first met Arthur Jones and his experience with Arthur working with him in the Nautilus company. See, believe it or not, I knew Arthur Jones since I was nine years old. Really? Now, I, I didn't, I mean, it was just by accident because at that time he had never probably never even thought of Nautilus, but he was in, he was in uh, importing and exporting wild animals and, and also farm. And he had a reptile farm in Slido, Louisiana. So I remember driving by there on the way going to Florida and you know, as a 19-year-old kid, hey, Dad, let's stop. We've got to take a break. Right. Right. And, and look at the, you know, he had, he had some impressive stuff. But what people didn't realize, and I didn't get to know years later, all those reptile farms throughout the southern states was a front. It was a front for gambling. <laughs> you know, and kid, I didn't realize. I just, you go in and look at but they always had a big game, club game going on in the back. Uh, anyway, that's how I, and Arthur had a real distinct voice. So while I saw the guy, and I didn't know who he was, I remember that voice. So the first time Arthur called me was maybe a few months after I went to America. I remember his first call. He says, 
Yeah, answer the phone and says, hey, this is Arthur Jones. He says, I got a machine down here in Florida that will build lights on the garden rig. Are you interested? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the guy with the crackpot, you know? So, but anyway, you know, and the only reason that he called me because he wanted Bill Paul to go down there because Paul had been in a movie years before that offered me. Right, right. And man, he said, I really don't want to go over there. He said, there's a new kid in Louisiana who just won to Mr. America right in Utah. Why don't you call him? <laughs> so I have to call him. And so, you know, hell, I'm game. I go down there. Hell, I have to offer Bill the first prototype on the front porch of his house. Wow, wow. So we worked together for maybe a month, but I couldn't get along with him. I said, I'm going home. So that that was like maybe 1970. So then again, in the, oh, I guess maybe, oh, I guess 19, must have been about 1982, I see Arthur at a, at a Ursa trade show, big equipment trade show. And we sit there talking, and by that time we had started Bottom Masters, and not anywhere close to competing with novels, but we were starting to eat into some of those sales. So he says, uh, hey, he says, I want you to come and work for me. So we don't make you offer. He says, I don't know. He says, we'll think of something. <laughs> so when I go down there, I am all the way. I didn't want to give a novel anything, but Arthur had a hundred thousand square foot. Are you still there, John? Yeah. Okay, because I got okay. Yeah, just one. Yeah, uh, he had a hundred thousand square foot television production studio, and I had sense enough to know, man, if I can get in on the ground floor of this, I'll be a zillionaire. Yeah. yeah. But at the time, he had more camera equipment than ABC, NBC, and CBS combined. Wow. He had wow. nine functional studios that he could produce. So, the, you got to remember now, this is about the same era that Turner is starting CNN. Okay, okay. Now, Ted Turner's got cable. Arthur doesn't have cable, but Ted, Ted doesn't have production capabilities. Arthur had unbelievable production capabilities. So we go to Atlanta, we go to see Ted Turner. He says, look, he says, I'll provide you all the production you want for all your shows. And it will cost you nothing. All I want you to do in return is run enormous commercials 24 hours a day. Because I'm looking around, he didn't have much in the way of stuff. I mean, CNN was just getting started in those days. <laughs> Listen, so if that would have come about, I mean, but Ted turned it down. He was afraid of all that. Listen. <laughs> He was afraid of Arthur came on too strong, so that never happened. But I, I really believe if Arthur would have been successful in starting his cable like he wanted, he would be as big as like Fox and CNN is today. Wow. He was so far advanced. Let me give you an example. 1972, I'm down there. He had called me and we had to go down and look. He was just starting to put his first pullover machine with a selectorized weight stack mm -hmm. before they had plate-loaded weight stacks. I'm in there talking to him. Pete Gronkowski was down there and he was trying to win the, he was trying to go for the Mr. America. So Arthur says, you know, he says, one day 
He says, there won't be any more libraries anymore. He said, there won't be any books. So what do you mean? He said, you know the Sears Burbank catalog? He said, that'd be the thing of the past. I said, what do you mean? He says, look. He says, not right now, it's too expensive. But he said, everything will be on these little discs. And they'll be just a, just a casual purpose. Maybe two or three bucks, you'll watch it, throw it away. Just like you buy a magazine and throw it away. Now you got to remember, 1971-72, VHS hadn't even come out yet. But he, was, he already knew about the disc. Which only led me to one conclusion. Arthur, and I cannot prove this, just speculation. Arthur was involved with the CIA. Really? Really? Yeah, because when, when I worked down there, there was constantly FBI, CIA people, uh, G. Gordon Liddy was down there all the time. Hmm. He was connected in some way. And you just don't all of a sudden have go from having nothing to having no money than you know what to do with. Right. And that is too fast. 1970, when Casey won, well, you know, you, you remember Casey was third when he won the Mr. American Dickerson won. Right. If Casey right. had won that night, nobody would have complained. Right. It was only right. it was only 18, and he was outstanding. Right. Okay. Right. So that's that August or that September, Casey goes to New Orleans, but he was, he was living with Arthur at the time. Goes to New Orleans, and wins the USA. Well, he brings the first. Plate loaded pull machine, where the world paid him $300. That's the only $300 he had. That was it. 300 bucks. And you go from that to a couple of years later, he's got helicopters, he's got jets, he's got 100000 Where the hell did all that money come from? Yeah, right. I mean, equipment was selling good, but it wasn't selling that good. Right, right. But once again, good story, but just my speculation. <laughs> all right. And our next interview is this is an interview I did with. Jerry Branham and Phil Williams last year, and this was after Sean Roden passed away. Sean Roden, of course, was the 2018 Mr. Olympia. We were all shocked when Sean passed away last year. It took the whole bodybuilding world by surprise. Sean died of a heart attack. There were so many deaths last year in the bodybuilding world, especially with some of the younger competitors. These guys weren't guys in their 80s or 90s. These were younger guys. In addition to Sean, George Peterson passed away two days before the Mr. Olympia last year. And George Peterson was a top 212 competitor in the Olympia. He probably would have placed third or fourth uh, last year if he would have been able to compete for the contest. So it was really an unbelievably bad year for bodybuilding. So I thought I would bring Jerry and Phil on the show, and we talked about Sean Roden's death. But in this part of our interview, we talk about how the bodybuilders used steroids back in the 70s and 80s compared to what's going on today. I'll tell you guys a story. I trained with Samir. I lived with Samir. In 81, I moved to California, and he let me stay with him for four to six weeks. I believe it was about six weeks until I found the place. Wait a minute. Before you go on, Phil, today is uh, today's Samir's birthday. Yeah, today's birthday. Oh, yeah. Happy birthday, Samir. Yeah, I, I sent him a uh, happy birthday uh, go ahead, text. Yeah. And I was with him, spent time with him. We got to know each other very well. I lived in his apartment with him for about six weeks. Another guy, Ali Mala, was a workout partner for a while, right? I trained with Ray Mincer for a time. I got to know Mike real well. The story, I mean, the subject of steroids never came up. Wow. We never talked about it. I mean, there was an opportunity to probably. Sure. I never brought it up, and they never mentioned it. Yeah. We talked about training. We talked about eating. 
this and that, but the subject never never came up. Hmm. So they weren't really they used it where it needed to be used, right? right? But they weren't like uh I mean they didn't glorify it in any way. Yeah. It was just something you had to do. Yeah. And that was it. And like I said, it was never discussed. Yeah. You know, when, when the guys would get together in the seventies, just to confirm what you're saying, Phil, you know, Arnold and all those guys, you know, back to the original goal. Uh, I've been out with these guys a lot. I, I don't remember any any time, even one time, that the discussion turned down when they started talking about steroids. I never, ever heard that once. So was nope. that because it wasn't a big part of the protocol or because well, they were just discussed? Well, they, they weren't glorified. They weren't glorified. Yeah. And I don't think they, these guys put as much emphasis no. on steroids as the guys do today. In other words, the guys today would look at large doses of steroids as absolutely essential, you know, whereas back in those days, as Bill points out, steroids are more of a tool to be used in conjunction with hard training and good right. nutrition. They weren't yeah. the be-all and end-all of bodybuilding success. Today, it's reversed, absolutely. where today, where steroids are number one and the training and diet are a vast Take a second, take a uh, back seat to that. Take a back seat to the, yeah, it's reversed. And this is a very dangerous trend because these people have this idiotic notion that you can get away with taking large doses of steroids and not pay a price. Bullshit. A, a, a tenant of pharmacology, there's an old saying, uh, guy Parasecret said this God knows how many centuries ago, only the dose determines the poison. You know, in other mm-hmm. words, when you, you you can't take large doses of something and not, especially you know for extended times, and not expect to pay a price sooner or later. Absolutely. If you're lucky, you'll live. If you're Absolutely. not, well, you know, you know, you see what happens. You know. Yeah. Well, this is what's happening. Well, it yeah. seems like every decade, well, it's competition, right? So the competition gets harder and harder, and then everybody's forced to do more and more and more, right? More. I'll tell you what I think. There's what the. You know, you say to me, if you say to me, well, what can be done about this? What can we, what can we do to maybe help protect these bodybuilders who are going to take these drugs? There's no freaking drug testing. It's all bullshit. I mean, yeah. they don't, the, the, I'll say it. I don't care. I'm not involved with any magazines. The, the, the governing bodies of bodybuilding, they don't give two shits about these guys' health. They don't give a fuck. The guy who owns all the magazines, he, he, he talks big. But he's not doing anything to help ensure the health of these bodybuilders. I, to, to, to really help these guys, there's only, and women, and women, you, you, there has to be some sort of medical protocol in, in place. You know what I'm saying? In other words, there's got to be regular medical exams and blood tests done. The thing is that, in other words, they got the money to do it. They should institute some sort of medical testing program. Where, and I'm not talking about off-season steroid tests. That's good too. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, you, you know, they're not going to test these guys. We talked about this before, John. Remember what happened in the 90 Olympia? Yeah. I yeah. mean, they tried the drug testing one year and supposedly the guys didn't look in top shape and the powers that be that ran bodybuilding said no more because if the guys don't look freaky, we're going to lose the fans and this and that. So forget about drug testing at cons. It's not going to happen. So what you can do is institute some sort of year-round, not just before a show, year-round medical testing program where the guys and the women undergo tests, like, for example, calcium, uh, 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 what is it called, calcium scanning of the arteries, which is an early sign of 
we can predict uh, an impending heart attack or stroke, various blood tests. I honestly, it might sound crazy. I think it should be done once a month. In other words, if these people are going to be able to do that with all the competitors, they'd have to. But that's the only way to yeah. do it because if these people are going to stay, as you say, John, if they're going to stay on large doses year round, you better test them every month. Because I personally believe whether a governing body or the athletes themselves pay for it, it has to be done. Because if you don't do that, you don't know what the fuck's going to happen. And you could wind up like Sean Roden, any of these. And again, I'm not saying that Sean, steroids killed Sean Roden. What I'm saying is if you take the high-dose drugs all around, you don't know what's going on inside you unless you get checked. And if you get checked and something shows up that you're heading for a brick wall, it gives you a chance to get off the stuff and save your freaking life. You know, yeah. otherwise, if they keep doing this, it's going to happen. As as Phil oh, says, it's just going to continue. You know, you, you mentioned that 1990 Olympia, and we've talked about that many times. And uh, like you said, the guys, well, first of all, there was no foolproof test for testing oh. everybody. If they, if they had a foolproof test, I could see them going forward with it. <clears throat> but the other thing was, which is uh, a thing that people kind of forget about what happened at that year, was that was the year the WBF was being formed. Right. Tom Platts showed up at that 1990 Olympia, and he was the recruiter, and he was going out and trying to get all the guys to join the WBF, which started the next year. Okay. And I think, I'm not sure, but maybe the IFBB's, one of the reasons the IFBB decided to not do the drug testing was because I heard that Tom Platts was telling the guys, hey, you won't have to worry about this drug testing crap. Right. You guys can get as big and freaky as you want. Which was ironic because what happened was a couple of years later, they did end up drug testing them. Drug testing, yeah. But I always thought maybe the IFBB would say, whoa, if we start drug testing and our guys are downsized and the fans don't like that, and then some other rival organization starts up and says, wait, we're not doing drug testing. We're going to give you guys what you want. We're going to give these guys, they're going to be big and freaky. Yeah. There goes the IFBB, and then the other organization is going to take over. That's, That's probably true. true. That could have entered into it for sure. Yeah, absolutely. That could have been. But the, the the bottom line is that, you know, these these guys are, are uh, playing Russian roulette. They're the women. You know, they're listening to these uh, so-called coaches who have no yeah. medical background, don't really know the the uh, pharm- you know the pharmacology of these drugs, and worst of all, they don't know what to do if a problem does come up. Yeah. They, they don't have the medical background. Right. You know, like, like, let's say that, uh, you know, it probably still happens occasionally, like what happened to Phil and Mike Matarazzo. Let's say they take a potassium-sparing drug, and the coach tells them to, you know, pump in the potassium at the same time, and they start to get all screwed up. I mean, does the coach know what to do? He better. Otherwise, yeah. this person could die. Yeah, probably not. Yeah. Well. You know, I did, I did an interview with Lee Labrada years ago, and we were yeah. talking about the 1990 Olympia, and he was all in favor of it. And he said, you know, I know that first year it was kind of an experiment and some of the guys, you know, didn't look as good. And that was the main complaint was the competitors didn't look as good. But he goes, if they would have stuck with it, the guys would have learned to deal with doing maybe less drugs. Maybe they weren't, maybe they weren't all drug free. Maybe they just got by enough to pass the test or whatever. Sure. But they would, it would have led to a better sport, he thinks. And it also would have led to better sponsorships. You know, everybody complains about the money. There's not enough money in bodybuilding. You know, but he said, well, if, if you guys want a sport like this, then expect it lower money. 
because you're not going to get the sponsors. You're not going to get the big sponsors. The big corporate sponsors aren't, aren't going to put millions of dollars on. I was watching something on TV the other day, Women's Rodeo, and they were talking about millions of dollars for Women's Rodeo. <laughs> I'm like, man. If you go to England and you and you throw darts, dart players make more money than bodybuilders. Yeah. And that's no joke. I, I remember one A beer in one hand and a dart in the other. <laughs> I remember one year, do you remember how Ben Weeder was for, like, his big passion in life? Again, bodybuilding in the Olympics. In the Olympics. Yeah. I remember one year, I mean, he used to schmooze all these Olympic officials, hang out with them and give them money, you know, to try and get, he thought that bodybuilding getting the Olympics would give a certain amount of respectability mm-hmm. to bodybuilding that it didn't have. Because, you know, body, to the average person on the street, you know, they saw the guys with baby oil and, and trunks and, they thought these were guys with freaks and, you know, whatever. You know, he felt that the Olympics, getting the Olympics, which is the upper echelon of sport, would give a certain level of respectability to bodybuilding. But, you know, and he came close to it one year, but, and, and he started, and what he did was he instituted drug testing right. regularly in the amateur division, like the world championships. Yeah. Uh, I, I remember, uh, what was it, 87? Where. Was it eighty six? Year, I was in eighty five. Okay, drug, drug testing the next year. Next okay. year, yeah. Wasn't wasn't Ralph Mueller, if I remember, had gotten four in, in the show? Correct. And the three guys had them all got busted. <laughs> <I just qualified. laughs> right. you know, yeah. right. He wound up winning. You know what I mean? So yeah. you, know, you had that type of thing. But so what happened was he was just this far away. It's the truth. He was. They actually made an announcement. Do you remember hmm. that? They were going to put bodybuilding in as a, as a so-called spectator sport, yeah. which is the first step to becoming an official Olympic sport. Right. It was the first step. But what happened was at the last minute, it was, it fell through. But at the same time, this is what, this is what I'm leading up to. It's going to make you laugh. What was approved as a spectator sport for the Olympics was hula hoop. <laughs> <laughs> Hulu's probably in the Olympics, am I right? Yeah, yeah I think it is. There, there you go. In other words, they wouldn't want bodybuilding where guys literally and women knock themselves out. Right. I, it's, I mean, really, it's, it's one of the toughest things you do because, yeah. you know, but they allow somebody to take a plastic hoop and swing <laughs> it around, which doesn't take much skill at all. That made it as an Olympic spectator sport, but right. bodybuilding was out. And to this day, there's no bodybuilding of any kind in the Olympics. They don't speak of it anymore. They, they no, no longer speak of it. Nothing. Right. Yeah. No the, the, the bodybuilding is so tainted with steroid use that, that the Olympic officials, if you, oh. I can imagine approaching, uh, let's say one of these guys on the uh, International Olympic Committee, sir, sir, would you consider a body? You go like, you probably run away down the street. He wouldn't even talk to you. Yeah, you got to give Ben credit though for trying to make it legitimate, yeah. a legitimate yeah. sport. Yeah. All right, another great guy that we lost in the world of bodybuilding was, of course, Peter McGuff. Peter was the editor in chief of Flex Magazine, probably the best writer in the bodybuilding world, and a great historian. And Peter battled cancer for many, many years, and then he finally succumbed to the disease in uh, December, I believe, of 2020. So back in 2018, Wayne Galash was visiting Florida. He went over and visited with Doris Berrio, uh, who also has passed away since then. And Wayne and I 
went over to meet Peter at his house and we spent the day with him. And we did an interview there, of course, for the podcast. So this is part of that interview. And in this interview, Peter and Wayne talk about the NABA universe and Arnold Schwarzenegger back in 1970. Well, I think I'd read it in the magazines that it was probably his last, and I knew that there would be pressure between Weeder and, and NABA, and that he would probably go in the IFBB direction with Joe. So it was a general consensus that it would probably be his last for various reasons, and I think the magazines might have said it or hinted at it, and I was aware that that was my last chance probably to see him, and that turned out to be the way it was. Okay. Uh, Peter, did you go to the pre-judging also, or just a night show? Just, just, the, just well, it was, it was an afternoon yeah. show, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. 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 yeah, it was Queen Victoria Theatre. Yes, yeah, so I think I said to John, I think it started at about 2 o'clock and finished about 4.30. That's it, and then we used to go... It wasn't a banquet, but it was a get-together yeah. with the guys. And you, you, then you'd get the likes of Frank Zane whipping his top yeah, off and doing poses. Yeah. It was yeah. that, that year, 1971 no, it was. I got two friends, John Courtney, who got me into bodybuilding and who died recently. Um, lifelong best friend I ever had. And another friend we had, Les Wright, he was... Computer Junior Mr. Britain in the 50s. These were both great talkers, mm-hmm. wits. Les attached himself to Oscar Heidenstam as we approached the banquet. And we walked oh, in with Oscar. We didn't have to pay because everybody yeah. thought we were with, <laughs> yeah. with Oscar. Um, I can tell you another story about Les Wright maybe a bit later on. But to go to 1970, um, you know, Dave Draper was in it, Reg yeah. Park. This was the the big meeting, you know, Reg had been like Arnold's mentor and this was the mentor taking on the yeah. pupil. And, um, you know, somebody said something to Arnold about, so how's the contest going? And he said, what contest? <laughs> Which was typical Arnold, yeah. even even arrogant towards this Too legend, right. you know. Yeah. Of course he won. Um, but the interesting thing there is... Um, the Mr. World was being held the next day in Columbus. Yes, right. And that's when he first met Jim Lorimer. Jim Lorimer arranged to fly Arnold and a couple of the other guys from the NABBA universe yeah. in London on the Saturday to Sunday in Columbus. And, of course, that's the first time Arnold beat uh, Sergio. So it was a momentous weekend. It was almost, if you look about it, that was his goodbye to... Nabba, and this was I've arrived in the IFBB. I just beat Sergio, and in a few weeks' time, I'm going to be Mr. Olympia. Right. right. You know, so it was a real fulcrum moment. Yeah. And what people forget is the fact mm-hmm. that because it was an afternoon contest in England, he was able to rush to Heathrow Airport, fly to New York, and then I understand Jim Lorimer had a private jet to rush him to Columbus. That, that is correct. They couldn't get a scheduled flight from New York to Columbus, but the private jet, which shows how big thinking Joe, um, Jim Lorimer was all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes, that story came out last weekend at the Arnold Classic when they had the Sunday seminar. Yeah. And I interviewed Boyer Cole, and I remember he said that uh, they didn't have to go through customs or nothing. They just went on this private jet. Yeah. So Lorimer must have had some, because yeah. <laughs> he used to work for the FBI, so he must have had some, uh, some connections. Right, right. Yeah. 
So tell me, uh, well, let's talk about the amateur division of that year because you had uh, Franco, Col- or, yeah, Franco Colombo was beaten by Chris Dickerson in the short class, and then um, Boyer Co. beat out Jim Hayslop in the medium class, and I think Frank Richards won the tall class, correct? Well, actually, um, actually, Jim Hayslop wasn't there in 1970. Oh, that's right. I'm yeah, 69, yeah, and I miss seeing Jim Hayslop. I never saw yeah. him. But uh, uh, Frank Zane won his class in the amateur. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. I yeah, that's right. And, uh, yeah. and, of course, and then he went on and he won the overall amateur, and his wife won the bikini contest. Yeah. And there's a, a terrific photograph I have, which I got from George Greenwood, of mm-hmm. Arnold and Frank holding uh, Christine Zane between them. Yeah. yeah. You know the photo? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, that's a famous photo. So what did you think of uh, Frank Zane? Well, I thought I thought he was a good winner that year. I had no arguments with that whatsoever. But I'd like to ask you two: What did you think of the result between Reg Park and Dave Draper? Do you think that Dave Draper was unlucky to get third? Well, Dave Draper. I mean, I'm English, so Reg Park was an inspirational legend to us all. But I, early sixties, I, I really got involved with bodybuilding a lot earlier than the first time I went to the gym, I remember looking at, I was in the scouts, went to this scout hall, in this little anteroom, they had a few weights, they had some magazines, and, you know, the guys that were in the magazine then for, for Joe were uh, Hugo Labra, Freddie Ortiz. Yeah, I that. Now, Freddie Ortiz, if he came out today and you showed a photograph, people would say, that's Photoshop. Nobody can look, <laughs> nobody has arms or lights like yeah, that. that. They were real. They were real, yeah. yeah. So, and I, I, I was a bit of an artist, a drawing artist. And um, I used to draw Superman, but I used to make him more muscular than the actual Superman. So I was aware of the Weeder magazines because the soup, you know, the adverts were in the back of the Superman comic. I, this is, I'm, I'm rambling yeah. here. But I had this sort of slow burn. I knew who the bodybuilders were even before... I made the commitment to yeah. start training, you know, because my, my friend John, he was always trying to get me in training. I said, no, I'm, I'm game soccer and track, I can't, I'll get muscle bound, you know, stupid theory. But of course, mm-hmm. once I did start to train, I was always the most, I had the most stamina on the soccer field and yeah. could run for it anyway. So what was the point I was trying to make, John? Uh, you know, Dave Draper. Yeah, I, I would, Dave was more, uh, What's the word? Caught, you know, had, conditioned. Had, yeah, yeah, yeah. He had, yeah. He, had uh, he had better condition for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, you know, like I say, you know, it, it wasn't. We never used to argue and scream about results. You know, it, it was more. You know, you were there to see the guys. But I would, I would have maybe given it to Dave second yeah, place. I but think I would have too. Yeah. I thought he had. I thought he had just a little bit more condition on the day, and I felt that in a close decision, uh, Reg being such an idol of the English, that helped pull him through into second place. Yeah, yeah. And that's the way it works out. But Arnold was on his own, wasn't well, he? He's was a class above. Yeah. 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 Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, we are. We're, we're fortunate. We saw Arnold compete at his peak, and there's not many people around that are talking in microphones today yeah. that uh, actually saw him at his peak. Well, he, he had it. He had the height. He had fantastic condition. He had very good overall symmetry for a tall man. 
wonderful biceps and a fantastic twisting back shot, which many people have tried to copy. But you never see his twisting back pose on bodybuilders today. And that's the difference. They can't do it. No. I mean, he didn't have the narrowest of waists, but he could make that in those... Yeah. Three quarter shots. He looked like he had a twenty-two inch waist. Yeah. The thing about Arnold is he always played to his best shots. Mm-hmm. You know, even if he was asked to do a double bicep or throw it a side chest before it. Just no, that's how good I am. Yeah. It was always the showman, and he was smart. Yeah. He, he, had, he had a strategy on yeah. stage. It was, you know, it always looked easy to him. Big beaming smile. The other guys sweating and yeah. you know, yeah, traumatized, and he's just having fun. But it, yeah. that was his strategy. Yeah, that's what I always heard about Arnold. He was always aware of not only how he looked, but he always was aware of what was going on around him, where everyone else was more concerned what was going on with them during a contest, you know, because... And Arnold also knew how to psych out his opponents. He had them thinking they were beaten right from the start, and he was always acting like the winner, which he knew he was going to be. And he did that for many, many years, and that's in part how he won the 1980 uh, Olympia, Mm -hmm. because he somewhat psyched the others out. And he had a pretty good overall package, and we've talked about this many times. Chris Dickerson, who plays second, if you were a judge then, when it came down to the last two, Arnold or Chris Dickerson, I think you can understand whatever the politics were involved, you can understand they said, well, we prefer Arnold to Chris Dickerson as Mr Olympia. So I think that was part of the psychology and what actually happened Mm. in 1980. Yeah. Yeah, I... uh Funny thing, going back to, say, 1980, you know, Mm -hmm. this is how it was in those days. I I was waiting for muscle and fitness to come out. That had just been established, changed from muscle build. There was no flex in those days. I went to the newsstand. This was like six or seven weeks after the Olympics. And on the cover was all these pictures of Arnold, and I thought, what the hell is Arnold doing on the cover of the Olympic? Because he was retired, wasn't yeah. he? Yeah, and it never drifted around, you know, like now, you know, somebody yeah. breaks wind and the whole yeah. world knows about it within <laughs> yeah. 10 seconds, yeah. especially if it's powerful. But um, <laughs> in those days, you had to <laughs> trust me to bring the conversation down. Yeah. Um, and then when you look, I, I was always of the impression from what I saw despite all the controversy, I would have given it to Arnold. Because even though it wasn't Arnold, the others all had faults. Yeah, they did. And, and like you say, standing next to Dickerson. And that was the other thing. Arnold didn't follow the script. He didn't side tricep. He would never hit a side. It was no good in that. He'd do something else. He never gave yeah. an opening to anybody. But he got away with it. That yeah. That's the thing. Yeah, because he had the charisma and the standing. He had yeah. Franco coming on with a yeah. towel and yeah. all the rest yeah. of it. It was, you know, Batman and Robin all over again. So... Uh, you know, he says he he was told he was behind by Bill Pearl after the prejudging, and then he posed and posed and posed, sweated all the water yeah, out, yeah. And, and then came out through in the evening. And he dominated in the end. Yeah, he's the, he, he is the ultimate bodybuilding competitor. And the other yeah. thing about it is, despite all the controversy and people saying it, most controversies never should have won. Yeah. It never bothered him. It never bothered, he just wanted to be number one. That was what was important. Yeah, yeah. Whether you thought it doesn't matter, I'm number one, record books, look, it's her. Right. That right. was the end of it. Right. You know, he never went into a long debate about it, did yeah, he? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Arnold, uh, 
I always call him the Muhammad Ali of bodybuilding because it wasn't just his physique, which I think is, stands right up there. You know, I mean, obviously things change with generations, but it was the way he conducted himself at contest. And we're talking about this 1980 Olympia. This is 2018, so look how many years this is, and we still talk about it. And that meeting he had when he almost got in that fight with Mike Menser, I mean, he did that to psych out these guys, but we're still talking about that because it was just he was so colorful and he had such a personality and he did things that no one else did and I think that's what makes him you know one of the greatest bodybuilders ever uh, absolutely I mean he, he, he had the mentality to, to, to pull forward with it but um, you know I think that business with Mensa uh, this was all to do with having two weight classes everybody else wanted uh, two weight classes he wanted one weight class I think if everybody else had wanted one weight class he'd have got it was just get them thinking about something else and getting here's Arnold again trying to rule the roost and all the rest of it right right. Um, so you know he said about Frank saying you know he told him Frank said you never told me you were going to do the contest he says it's not about friendship it's about strategy you know yeah exactly he was a master he was a master when it came to strategy and psyching people out and getting dominance over them before they even stood on stage and that's what he was uh, an expert at Mm -hmm. and uh, like Muhammad Ali he just had that ability to be able to dominate an event Mm -hmm. it's funny bringing up Muhammad Ali I mean the night before the Olympia, the 1980s Olympia, yeah. Muhammad Ali fought Trevor Burbeck, his yeah. last fight, and got absolutely yeah. pounded. Yeah. I was watching that, and you must, you must have thought at some point, seen some correlate, like yeah. you're saying, it was an obvious counterpart. Have I bitten too much off? But, but he didn't. He didn't, no. Yeah. Yeah. He managed it. Yeah. yeah. So what was it, when you guys left that contest that night in 1970, did you realize how that you had seen these unbelievable bodybuilders and that, you know, it was just such a great lineup of, of great champions that would live on for years? Well, when I left that contest, I was somewhat in a daze because I wasn't quite sure if Arnold was going to be able to do it. As the contest progressed, I was pretty sure that he was going to do it. And my other thought was this. Chris Dickerson was pretty close, but he didn't have the upper body of Arnold. He was nowhere near. He had great legs. And and my thoughts were, well, probably Chris Dickerson will come out and win it next year. And I was thinking ahead 12 months (laughs) because I knew that Arnold had finished and he was going into his movie career. So I was more thinking along the lines of of Chris Dickerson and also wondering if Frank Zane would ever win another Olympia because I think he was uh, third from memory. Boyer was fourth. And my other thought was this. I thought that uh, Mike Menser was a little bit hard done by getting fifth. I'm sorry, I should have specified, I meant like 1970. What did you think about 1970 when you walked away from that? Uh, well, in 1970, I just knew I'd seen the best bodybuilder in the world. That was very clear-cut and obvious, and, mm-hmm. and Arnold was on his own level there, uh, and there was no doubt about that. And everybody expected him to win, and he did win. And uh, Reg was also a little bit past his peak in 1970, so it was a a pretty comfortable victory. And then in 71, 
uh, Arnold won the Olympia in Paris, and he was up against one other unknown competitor, which hardly gets a mention in the record books. And I wrote an article about that event, and I checked the article the other day, and I named this competitor, hmm. but he wasn't even officially qualified to be in the Olympia. Olympia. So I suspect that Serge Newbray just wanted to have somebody else in the contest <laughs> because Sergio had been banned and was turned into the guest poser, and uh, and. Uh, Franco also guest posed because he'd been disqualified, I think, for something he'd done in California or taken money for an appearance. So mm. did you know about that, uh, uh, Peter? Yeah, they were both in, in Paris ready to do the Olympia when they were told, you know, you're going to be barred, which I don't think Serge would have liked that because there was no contest then. So whether they shuttled this other guy on or not, I don't know. But, you know, it, they did. it's a bit sad to think that Franco and Sergio were standing there ready to, to pose and, and politics got in the way now you know I, I did ask Arnold once about that 71 contest you know that he'd, he first of all it looked like he might enter it back end then this new ruling came out aggressive way he said I really wanted to beat Bill Pearl mm -hmm. I wanted the opportunity to beat him you know well, you talking about the 71 never yeah 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 um and uh, I didn't get the opportunity, so that, that's the way he, he, he felt about it. Yeah. yeah. All right. It was always great to hear from Peter, man. I miss, miss Peter. He was a friend of mine, and uh, it's great to hear his voice and his recollections. I wish he was still with us. Um, the bodybuilding world really misses him, but I'm glad we were able to do a few interviews with Peter just as I was able to do that with Chris Dickerson. So we'll always have those interviews to go back to at least. All right, uh, let's have a little fun now. This is a really fun interview I did with a couple of Chicago friends of mine. Bob Guida, who was the 1966 Mr. America. Bob has also passed away. Bob passed away last year as well. And his friend, Al Yakich and Terry Strand. So I got all three of these guys on a phone call together. This is probably about 2018, I think, 2019, probably 2018. And uh, they told some really, really great stories about Sergio Oliva when he was training in Chicago. And we're going to start off the interview with them talking about Rock Stonewall. Now, Rock, if you remember your bodybuilding history, Rock was a big competitor in the IFBB in the, in the 60s. Um, Rock won his class at the IFBB Mr. America several times. He would always win the best back trophy. But he had a uh, really colorful life uh, living in Chicago. He was a pimp, <laughs> and he was working as a manager for a gym, and he was really a character. So. We're going to start off our interview with Bob and Al and Terry, and they're going to talk about Rock Stonewall, and they're going to talk about Sergio Oliva. We found out he was charging the nutritional consultation fee, and in addition to that, he was banging the owner's daughter. <laughs> hey, hey, I was managing the gym club, and uh, Rock was running his own prostitution ring. And... These two guys came to the gym uh, before we opened, and these were the two big, the biggest Italian guys I've ever seen in my life. And they wanted to know, where's Rock? I said, well, he's not here right now. I said, when will he be here? I don't know. He makes his own hours. He's the owner. He said, we know that. Do you mind if we wait? <laughs> mind at all. I'm, I'm 18 years old. So we, we march him over to the lounge, which is a ripped-up couch, yeah. and a, 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 an old Sears Silvertone tea, black and white TV with a coat hanger for an antenna. They sat there for three straight days wait, waiting for Rock to show up. Uh. Rock calls me up. He says, babe, I said, Rock, don't babe me. Don't chant me. I've got two shade gorillas 
waiting in the gym for you for three days. What is going on? I already knew what was going on. I grew mm-hmm. up on the West. And he says, well, champ, i got to go underground for a while. You take care of the gym. You know, Dottie will be in charge, which was his ex-wife. That was a smart move. Give your ex-wife power of attorney over the gym. She sold the gym for meatballs for $500. No way. Yeah, that was the best gym I ever worked out in, by the way. It was designed by Irving Johnson. So Rock then makes his run for New York when he starts to work with Leroy Colbert. He was married to Leroy's sister. So they catch up with him in New York, and then they chase him all the way to California. He gets a job with Jack LaLanne. Jack LaLanne lets him live in his compound, so he's safe. He starts training at Bill Pearl's gym. Then Rock, who had a gift of gab like nobody you've ever met, talks Jack LaLanne into getting a loan on a 1971 Eldorado convertible. So Rock was going back into business. Mm-hmm. The outfit, <laughs> Jack Lane co-signs on the loan, and the outfit lets Rock know they caught up with him by torching the Eldorado. Wow, in California. Stuck for the balance of the loan. Now we found Jack Lane was in Chicago uh, pushing his My Fair Lady salons. We went to see him, and you know, I said, Jack, how you doing? I understand Rock's working for you now. He leaps from the chair. He says, where is that son of a bitch? <laughs> then he what happened. I says, I have no idea where he's at. So then Rock winds up going from California to Madison, Wisconsin, sets up a ring with the uh, uh, the college girls in Madison. They catch up with him there. They chase him back to Chicago. And he starts dealing dope in Rogers Park in Chicago. And he's standing on the corner with Sergio Oliva. Sergio was a police officer in the 24th District in Chicago. Okay. And about 10 police cars come flying up on the corner, guns drawn, orders stonewall to the ground. Sergio's standing there not knowing what the hell is going on. And this, Sergio told me the story himself. Yeah. And I had no idea Rock was wanted. Now, Sergio was a foot guy, so he never went to roll call. And they had Rock's picture on the wall saying, if he is dying, Arrest his ass. <laughs> Sergio in the squad car, take him to the police station, and in the meantime, the lieutenant is screaming at Sergio, what the hell is wrong with you? We've been looking for this guy for months, and your ass is on the corner talking to him? What's wrong? <laughs> Sergio was dumbfounded, so he had to write a report saying, you know, what his relationship was with Stonewall. Right. And so prison after that, and I understand after he got out, he went back to uh, Pennsylvania where he died mm-hmm. of... Uh, so that was kind of that was the saga of Ross Stonewall. Yeah, I was in a wheelchair for quite a while. But you know, you, you had to love the guy. I mean, no matter how big a thief he was, and I personally saw him do forty chins 40. in a row, in a row, in a row. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wide grip, wide grip chins, unbelievable back. One of the best back I've ever seen. This wow. is before drugs. This is Tully Greenland. There was nobody knew nothing about drugs at that time. This is right. difference nowadays. <laughs> a quick story about uh, the 69 Mr. America. This is when Arnold Schwarzenegger was sent by Weeder to mm-hmm. Chicago to find out what exactly did Sergio do. I mean, how did he train? What did he do? And Weeder, right. uh, and, and I had uh, dinner with Weeder in, in 2004, and he openly admitted. He said, I wasn't making any money with this guy. He, he was driving me nuts. So he figured, you know, Schwarzenegger was going to be his boy and sent him to Chicago to find out. So. Arnold says to Sergio at the 69 Mr. Mark, he says, I want to train with you. Sergio said, fine. I trained at the Duncan Wyatt's at 1515 West Monroe. Show up, we'll train. Mm -hmm. He showed up, and then Sergio promptly mopped the floor with him. (laughs) There was no way in the world 
that Arnold could keep up with Sergio. I mean, in anything, benches, squats, chins, dips. Yeah, I mean, I'm openly admitted. He, I was in the middle of the workout. He said, I'm done. What kind of workouts and what kind of weights was Sergio using back then? Well, back then he was doing repetitions with 500 in the bench. Wow. Uh, five and a half in the squat. He was doing 315 with bent over rowing. And every time he did a set, after a set, he would do either a set of chins or a set of dips. He was just uh, nonstop. Let me interrupt Go back to some comedy, all right? This, this, I'm reminded of this, and I, I enjoy telling this story. But Arnold Schwarzenegger is one of the smartest guys in the world. I mean, I competed against him in when I won Mr. Universe, okay? East Germany. East Germany. So I know he couldn't speak a word of English. But then the next time, Leopold Merck was his, his uh, translator, and the ne next time I met him, he was speaking rough English. And that was at the time when he came to America. But as he progressed, after Sergio, so-called, had wiped out by his strength, he had a number. Oliva came as an Olympic lifter from Cuba. He had a wonderful snatch, but he had hypermobile elbows. So he was always suffered from elbow problems and couldn't work his triceps because they were they were tough. So he had to do real short movements, and same thing with the curl. So his, his arms, although they got bigger and bigger and bigger as he got bigger, and there's plenty to be said about that, it was interesting when they started to compete against each other, okay? Mm -hmm. Sergio was at 235, and I, I visited him at the Duncan Y at the time, and I told him, I said, you look great. And I gave him some advice in terms of nutrients and stuff to you know, watch his diet and all that, okay? So after I had talked to him, Arnold called him up and said, Sergio, i got to tell you, I'm going to wipe you away. I'm weighing 255. I'm bigger than you, and big is better. Sergio went on a, on a whipped cream diet or something, started eating donuts and shit. Excuse me, audience, but... Beep, beep. Uh, he started eating crap, went up to 255. Schwarzenegger came in at 215. I was there. He was cut. He was ripped. It's when cuts and rips came back. And right. big size guys, Draper and those guys never showed that, that bigness again. They started getting muscular again for a while. Right. So, right. So, but that was, that was brilliant in terms of psyching another guy out. To get yeah. them to book up when all bodybuilders knew at that time, common knowledge, you after you bulked up, you trim down. Okay? Yeah. And, and the problem with that was your skin would sometimes hang because you got too big. But yeah. the Randall concept started with the eat as much as you can, Bruce Randall. Yeah, Bruce Randall. So there's the, the bodybuilding history is very interesting. What well, year was that, Bob, when, uh, when Arnold weighed 215 and he beat Sergio? Was that 69? Or 70, I mean, 70? I'm looking at 70. 70, yeah. 70 okay, yeah. Yeah. Well, Sergio's dietary proclivities were legendary in Chicago. When he first came to this country, a little guy named Jim Alexander gave him a job at a meatpacking plant. Okay. And he was astounded at, at Sergio's development. So, And he was watching Sergio take a side of beef on each shoulder and march it up a ramp and put it in a truck. So he, he says, no, this is nuts. i got to find out what this guy eats to get this big. So he right. sneaks in for his uh, lunchroom, and he sees Sergio dining on two bottles of Mountain Dew and two packets of Hostess Twinkies. <laughs> now, if you remember, you had you, you honored Sergio at one of your contests, yeah. and I picked, up, I, I picked him up at his house, 
and I'm, you know, we're, we're driving to your, uh, uh, up to uh, Romeoville, and Sue just I gotta get a snack. I said, all right, where do you want to go? He said, let me go to Walgreens. So we take him to Walgreens. He comes out, what did you come out with? Hostess Twinkies and Mountain Dew. Right <laughs> and laughing at him. He said, what's so funny? I said, Dew. Mountain Dew and your Hostess Twinkies. And then I told him the story about Jimmy Alexander, you know, sneaking into the lunchroom, and he just right. wanted to and started munching away. But that was it. I mean, he's dietary. He had no no When I was working as a paramedic in Chicago, about two blocks from his uh, station, I would walk into McDonald's and uh, get some coffee or something. He would be in there. This is one time I could talk of specifically, and he was sitting there in his uniform. He looked like King Kong. And he's chowing down in two big trays of McDonald's, big breakfast with all the greasy everything. And I say, hey, morning, Sergio. And he says, yeah, I got to eat. I got to get big. And he's chowing on. <laughs> Meanwhile, the other body, Frank Zane's weighing out his dietary supplements and his oatmeal with a jeweler scale and an iron looking for calories. <laughs> so that's the Sergio story. We had a lot of fun back then with that. Well, let's go back to Rock Stonewall because you mentioned that uh, he was running. He was ba- So he's basically running a prostitution ring. Yeah, he ran him out of the gym. He yeah. was a, he, in order to be part of Rock's stable, he had to work out and be in shape. You mean and we, be one of his had, girls? Yeah, one of his girls. Yeah, the, okay. that's what they were. And we had to we had to cordon off the uh, the locker room because when the girls came to work out uh, and they wanted to take a shower and dress, you know, the other guys couldn't do it, and that kind of ways to think because it was an all man's gym, and they didn't particularly go for that. Yeah, that was the beginning of the end. Oh, God, no, that was with Ralph. But the, no, Rock was, uh, uh, yeah, he used to have stag movie nights on Friday. He would he would go <laughs> rent a protector. And back then you had these 8-millimeter uh, porno movies. And he would charge, uh, get this, this is 1969. He charged five bucks <laughs> to guys to, to, to come in and, and bring their friends. And he saw a sheet over the chinny bar. And that's that was our uh, uh, screen. <laughs> stag movie night. Al, explain about the mob, because those of us, you know, who are living in this present day, we don't really understand that. But back then, the mob ran everything, and if you did any kind of crime in Chicago, you had to, you know, pay your tribute to the mob, right? Well, the problem Rock had is he was doing it downtown. Now, I think if he was on the south side or the west side, they kind of leave him alone. But, no, he had to do it in the loop, you know, which is his prostitution Mm ring. The problem with that is that the girls were kicking back their street tax the Gus Alex. Now, Gus Alex ran the loop for Tony Accardo, which was the mafia in Chicago. Right. And he wanted to know where is Rock's share. And the girl said, you know, you, that's your responsibility, they're not ours. And that's when they started chasing him. And the the street tax back then was 50%. So yeah. always spent his money, and he didn't have the money. Mm-hmm. Gus Alex. And that was a big mistake. You know, uh, back then, yeah. uh, they, they usually beat you half to death. But when right. Rock's came, I, I wound up, uh, uh, after I, I graduated college, I was uh, I had my own construction company. I did some work with Gus Alex. And I was sitting on the front porch of the building uh, that I worked on, and I said, look, I'm not wearing wire. You're not wearing a wire, obviously. I said, now, why didn't you just get Stonewall, beat the piss out of him, and get it over with? He says, kid, you've got to understand. He says, we couldn't let him get away with that. He said, the fear of the beating is much worse than the beating itself. 
Right. <laughs> and they pitched him. Oh, I just, well, I mean, why did you take all that time going from New York to California, back you know, to, to Wisconsin, to Chicago? He says, we wanted to make sure he never had a moment's peace, and he was always looking over his shoulder. Uh, what's and a rock diet? He had a stroke. He had a number of strokes, and uh, the last one killed him. And he was young, right? He was pretty young when he died, right? Early 50s. 50s, wow. Yeah, and he, uh, he spent, oh, God, I think he spent six to eight years in, in prison. Mm-hmm. You know, they really hammered him. Uh, you know, he, uh, he the, the slick act got old real quick with the Chicago police. Right. And he was married to uh, Leroy Colbert's sister, right? Right. And they got a divorce, and uh, he also had a side job. I'm, State Street in Chicago, where right now rests the uh, Harold Washington Library. Rock mm-hmm. used to do security work or bouncer work for the strip shows that were on State Street. And I think that's where he met his second or third wife. Yeah. So he was always into some kind of scamp activity. Tell me a little bit about some of Sergio's workouts and stuff, because I've always heard stories about how unbelievably strong he was. Of course, he was probably the most genetically gifted bodybuilder ever. So you guys were there when he was in his prime, and you saw him in his prime. Tell me a little bit of some of the stories that you saw. I always say that Sergio taught me Olympic weightlifting, and mm-hmm. I taught bodybuilding, okay? That's all yeah. I want to say about it. When the drugs and all the bigness and all the diet came out, I tried my best for years to influence his dietary procedures. And I was I was a nut from, from Irvin Johnson or Rio Blair, always on nutrition. I could talk that stuff night and day, okay? Mm-hmm. But Olympic lifting became my favorite thing to do. I, I, I love it. I mean, I, I, was, I won a region championship. Terry's got photos of me pressing 325 pounds. I like to know how many guys could do that, okay? Yeah, yeah. That's, Match was 280. Uh, my clean and jerk was 375. I cleaned 400, but I couldn't jerk it. I mean, that uh, was, was like somebody that ran six fours and then tried to run another six. When that was on my shoulders and I came up, I was just matching Clyde Emmerich. That's all I, I can remember at, at the time. But I loved that. But there was a t- that was the time when, when I w- was able to beat Ralph Kleiner for Mr. Chicago was because I outpressed him. And he was a strong guy. So strength and health, or health and strength, which was the name of the British version mm-hmm. of it, well, both of those looked at that. But the idea of health being a factor is an important thing for bodybuilders that that seems to be returning. I mean, now people accept, expect accept bodybuilding. In my time, the Catholic Church was ready to run me out for vanity and all the other sinful vices that you can be accused of because you looked in a mirror. But you want to do good bodybuilding, you need, a, you need to look in the mirror, not because you're admiring yourself. It's because you can see where your form is, and so you have to be able to regulate form. So, so it has changed dramatically. I'm saddened about the fact that, that now that there's no resources except for guys like you who can bring the health factor back and, and, and emphasize that, and we can start getting strength back in, in terms of where it belongs. Now, All right, that was great stuff. Uh, Bob Guida, El Yakich, and Terry Strand telling some great Chicago stories. And uh, rest in peace, Bob. We are going to miss you as well. But I'm glad I got a chance to do that interview with those guys. That was some great stuff. All right, speaking of Chicago, I got another couple Chicago guys here I want to listen to. Glenn Kinnear and Larry Bernstein. Glenn, 
was a great bodybuilder when I was growing up. He was about four years older than me. So I would, I would watch Glenn compete when I was a teenager and he was very inspirational. Glenn and I actually trained at the same gym together. And then Glenn moved to Arizona in the eighties. And then he won the 1986 AAU Mr. America title, which was the contest he always wanted to win. And then he tried to turn pro by competing in the MPC for a year, few years, but he never made it. And then Larry Bernstein was a great bodybuilder, a real short guy, always competed in the short class, but really powerfully built, incredible physique. And Larry won his class at the 1983 Mr. America, the one that Jeff King won. And then he went over and he won his class at the Nava Mr. Universe and Mr. World. So I did a fun interview with Glenn and Larry a few years ago. And in this first part of the clip, we're going to hear from Glenn, where he talks about today's bodybuilders versus the guys that he grew up admiring, some of the classic bodybuilders from the 70s and 80s. And then Glenn and Larry both talk about their memories of Tim Belknap. Tim Belknap was an amazing bodybuilder, way ahead of his time as far as freakiness and thickness. Uh, Tim went on to win the 1981 Mr. America title and then competed over in NABA and won the Mr. Universe over there and the WABA Mr. World, I believe. But uh, he was a real, real freak. And Glenn and Larry got to compete with Tim when he was just coming up competing in the Chicago area. So they're going to talk about that as well. Yeah. Yeah. What's the guy's name that won the classic part? Uh, Chris Bumstead. Okay. I mean, he th- I think he looks great, but he's he looks not great. Yeah. To Samir. He looks like an amateur compared to Samir. Yeah. Yeah. In my opinion. Yeah. Sure. He's in shape. He looks good. He looks like, you know, a Mr. Midwest kind of guy. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, you talk about Zane, Samir, but um Labrada, McAway. Labrada McAway is the one I was thinking of. Labrada. Yeah. Now those guys, I don't give a fuck who you compete against, big or not. Yeah. They to me look they're, fucking great. They're balanced. Right. Um I would place all four of those guys ahead of this oversized Mr. Olympia they have now. Oversized. Right, right. And then if you put them all in the classic, the kid who won this year, he's not even close to those professionals. Yeah. Right. He looks right. like a good amateur. And I'm not trying to put him down. Right, right. I mean, I just, and he's, hey, he's way better than me. Say whatever you want to say. I'm just saying he looks like an amateur still compared to our greats that we oh, see. Yeah. yeah. Zane, McAway, Banu, Lee Labrada. I mean, those guys are fucking superstars, man. Hall of Fame. I just listened to this podcast a couple of weeks ago and they got all these pros on there. Like four pros at once. It's a real popular podcast. And uh, the one guy was talking about Arnold. He said he was unbalanced. He said Arnold was unbalanced. I don't know what pictures he's looking at, you know. Yeah, what are you looking at? <laughs> and then he said Zane. Zane was the most overrated bodybuilder ever. Really? Yeah. Who is who is this? Who is, I know. Never mind. Never mind. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're from a different era. I mean, it's all about size and exactly hamstrings and gloves and – I've yeah. seen Frank Zane on stage several times. I, I bet you maybe half a dozen times. The guy, when the lights came on and he was under there. He was up there, yeah. He's like a statue, man. I know. This I is know. bodybuilding. How could you not look at him and say, damn, you think he won three Olympias for nothing? Nothing. Right, yeah. you know, and he beat some great bodybuilders like Boyer Coe was great. Yeah. Uh, name a few other guys. Yeah, they were great, but yeah. kind of like Lance. Lance was great, but Boyer Cohen, he didn't even have abs. 
Right. You know what I mean? He had right. these great, awesome arms. He yeah. didn't have a beautiful-looking physique. Right. And I thought Boyer Cole was one of the nicest guys I ever oh, met. Yeah, yeah. Super. Yeah. yeah, he was one of the coolest dudes I met. Um, like Mentor, he was always – he was never in shape. Pep. Yeah, let's talk about Bill now. We're getting, you know, all these years I'd compete against him as a teenager, and he was okay. I think I'd win. He'd take third or fourth or something. So you knew he was in the teenage shows, but not me. Yeah, I knew he was there. <laughs> I don't blame you. I'm, I was probably not existent. He, he was just kind of a heavy, big dude. He wasn't well, cut at all. At that time, he wasn't heavy. Oh, he wasn't? He was, you know, he was just an a average teenager. teenager. Yeah, yeah. Okay. He was like, get it, teenage body. And he always would take third or fourth. Mm-hmm. So then one year I, I told a couple of my friends that I'm still friends with, dude, let's just go to Kentucky. I want to enter this. Uh, <laughs> this story some, I, awesome. I entered some damn show in Kentucky. I don't remember the name or nothing. Yeah. And I was having a good time weekend eating pizza, this and that, but not till after the show. I went okay. there and I was in shape and I wind up taking fourth place. Well, back it up a step. I see Belknap, and that was the first time he was huge. I'm like, everyone's like, oh, my God, you see this guy, you see this. And I didn't even want to let him acknowledge that I noticed. Yeah, yeah. I was totally jealous. Like, how the fuck did he get so big? Well played, yeah. He was so big, dude. And he had all that shape in the world. Yeah. It was crazy because when we get on stage, he's smooth. But he's so much shaped and he's so big, I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. I take fourth place, they give Belknap fifth. Oh, no. He, he had steam coming out of his ears, man. <laughs> he was so fucking pissed. And that, that might have. He had a temper, man. That might have drove. Yeah, he was a hothead guy. Yeah. That drove him to get cut, come in there, win the Illinois. Yeah. Get more fucking ripped, win the Midwest. Right. Now he comes and gets. He's totally shredded to beat Lance Dreyer. Yeah. At the America. Dude. At the America. Yeah, at yeah. the America. Lance was, I mean, oh, yeah. I don't know whose face had the bigger surprise, Tim or Lance. <laughs> right. You right. know, Tim was like, wow, I actually won this prick. Yeah. And Lance was like, are you kidding me? Yeah. I, he, I mean. That was a, that was a four to three vote. I think Tim was just too ripped. Yeah. You know, he went down to lay heavy. Yeah. Yeah. As yeah, great as Lance was, Tim was just. And what, 540? is like. Yeah. That, yeah, back then. At 198. That size. That size, yeah. yeah. Now, Larry, you competed against him at the Junior Illinois, right? I competed against him numerous times. He really, he, I want to say someone like a nemesis, but yeah, the Junior Illinois, after I, I had a great year, and, uh, now that was the first time he was really big, right? Was it that well, was you, you? Yeah, we talked about this when we, when we talked before. Just like you were saying, I'm getting all pumped up, thinking I'm all that shit, ready to go on stage and freaking win a junior Illinois. And here's this Belknap standing in the corner with his velvet sweatsuit on. Yeah, I was shocked how big he no, got. Yeah, but I mean, he wasn't <laughs> even pumping up. He just standing there, standing there, standing there. Yeah. And I'm thinking he was just kind of a smooth, heavy chunk, whatever. He did takes you, it off. I lost. Did you know who he was, Larry, at that time? I had did no you? idea. No idea. No idea. Never saw him for. I should have just walked. I should have just gone home. I mean, I knew him. I knew him from the beginning. And like I said, yeah. he was fourth here, yeah. third here. But when I showed up in Kentucky and he was so freaking big and so shapely, beautiful. What year was, shape. what, what year was that, Glenn? Was that 82? 
Probably 80. Mine, because that's when, yeah. yeah, I think it was 80. Or wait a minute. Well, oh, yeah, it was probably 80. Because um, that's when he won the Junior Illinois, it was 80. And then he went on to win the Midwest, what, 81? Yeah. 81, yeah, and he won the Illinois in November of 80. And, and then what was the America, 82, right? No, 81, later that year. Oh, 81? 81, yeah. yeah. Same year. 82 was Rufus Howard. Yeah, yeah. You want to ah, see that full of names? <laughs> It's just like I seen Tim in four shows, and every one of them was like he, you know, smooth, big and smooth, but then a little cut. Wow, he's got some cuts here. Now he's ripped, and now the America shredded. Yeah. You know, the thing though with Belknap is didn't he, didn't he try to go like in the IFBB or NPC yeah. or something? IFBB. Yeah, both. He didn't do well. Right. Something happened. Because, man, so he left there, and that's when I ran into him in, at the Nava Universe in right. London in 84 and 85. I took right. second two years in a row. I was like, God damn it. I got to go across the freaking <laughs> world to lose to a guy who grew up two hours from me in Chicago. Right. And they're like, again? Again? I'm like, dude, I was thinking, you're supposed to be a pro. How are you even, you know, how are you in yeah. this? I was so pissed. Oh, I was so pissed. Larry, all right, and our final clip of the day is Barry DeMay. Barry is a great bodybuilder, and he's also looking great right now. He's 60 years old this year, and he looks amazing. I mean, he's got to be one of the best-shaped bodybuilders from the 1980s of all the guys from the 1980s. Barry looks just unbelievable. But I got a chance to talk to Barry a few years ago in Las Vegas when the Mr. Olympia was there, and uh, we did a two-part interview. And in this part of the interview, Barry talks about competing as an amateur um, he was in the Mr. Universe contest and took second place in 1983 to Bob Paris at only 21 years old. And then the next year, at 22 years old, he took second place in the universe to Mike Christian. And then finally, he got his pro card the next year in 1985 when he won his class at the Mr. World. So after you won the uh, Mr. Europe, then, I guess you thought, okay, now the next plan is the universe, right? you got to go in Mr. Universe. Yes, okay. exactly. So uh, it was called that that year was uh, World Champ in 1983. Yeah. Um, in Singapore, right? Yeah. Yeah. That might that that shape or condition in 1983 is still very impressive to myself. That yeah. My body was little, my waist was small, uh, but we all know who competed for the U.S. Bob Paris. Bob Paris, yeah. and he just finished. He just won a show. Beating Rory Liedermeyer. Right. Uh, I think Rich was competing Rich. in another. No, he was. He was in, against in, him too. Yeah. Rich Gaspari. Yeah. Rich Gaspari. Mike Christian. Matt, so Matt Mendenhall. Matt Mendenhall. Yeah. So he was like the guy guy to beat. Right. And, right. And even today, I'm recently I'm in contact with Bob again, and he, he still, you know, he writes on social media. That could have been either way. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. But I, you know. First of all, we were way ahead with our plan. Yeah. So to be second behind Paul Paris, that was like a yeah. or, or something that I uh, I was I'm still really proud of. Yeah. Did you know about Paris before you got there? No. Have, you know you no. you never heard of him in the magazines or anything? Okay. So that had to be amazing, though. You're in the Mister Universe at 21 years old. Yeah. And you take second place. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, and then next year we had the the then they called May that was in eighty. Three, it was called the World, uh, the World, World Championship. Amateur Championship. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and in eighty three, I think that was eighty four. It was for the last time. 
They called it the Mr. Universe in Las Vegas. In here. Las Vegas, yeah. In right. uh, yeah, here in Las in, in uh, Caesar Palace. Yeah, yeah. And that year, um, as far as condition wise, I don't believe it was my best year. I put it on some masks, but a lot of guys who put on masks, they they don't have that that detail anymore. Yeah. That's what happened. I was I was in decent shape. Yeah. But uh, I played second behind my Christian. Yeah. And I think I think that was fair. That yeah. Was the, yeah, that was. That was a fair decision. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That was a that was a contest that was covered on ESPN. Yeah. So they got yeah. a lot of coverage. I remember watching that at home, and that was great. Yeah. You got some real good. And they, you know, the way they were saying in the in the contest was it was really really tight between you guys. Yeah. And uh, you know, it was kind of disappointing when you lost, but still, you're only 22 at the time, right? 22. And yeah. Uh, the the funny thing is, because I was in that champ uh, muscle fitness article, right. At Commerce, you know, I had an eye on me, and, and Joe Weir oh, knew, knew me. Yeah. So in 83, I had a call from Ed Corners. Do you want to come out, you know, train here? Oh, okay. And I thought, well, this is, I mean, here. Yeah, I, I was so young and to go there. Ed Corners, you always like, pick, like, like upcoming stars. Right, and right. I, I was there for three months. In, in California? In California. Wow. In 80, 80, 83, before uh, Singapore even. Wow, okay. But that's how I got to know uh, uh, Lee, or um, my Christian. Okay. So I, I, I knew him pretty well. So we were, in 84, we were competing together. Okay. We okay. always have been good friends. Yeah. And uh, So tell me about that experience, about training at Gold's Gym in 1983. That would be wild. Well, like I said, you know, to me that was... Gold Gym, Arnold Schwarzenegger, yeah. Ed Connors picked me up, and a friend of me, he, he, he could come with me to stay at this place. Right. He picked us up, and uh, I, I didn't sleep for about three nights, not really. <laughs> and, the, and the first thing, I only said to him in the car, you know, can we go to Gold Gym first? Yeah. And I was, I remember, I was, I was keep on telling Ed, it's just like the movie here. It's just like the movie here. <laughs> So I wanted, I always wanted to live in the U.S. Yeah. when I was a kid. Right. So that was like, uh, and then now we're talking about 1983. Barbarians were training right. in gold. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was that, that was like some atmosphere right there. Yeah. Yeah. And probably Samir, right? Samir. Samir. Was there were all the guys. Yeah. And that was the the first time in my life I hit the hundred kilogram on the on the scale. You okay. Have to figure out in pounds. Yeah. <laughs> so that's. Uh, yeah, a little story to it. I, I can, I just, you, you edit, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, we went to, uh, me and my friend went for a pizza one day, and uh, we ordered, we in the hall, we used to order a pizza, and we ordered both a pizza, and the lady said, you want both a pizza, or you want a slide of pizza? You told of course we have both a pizza. <laughs> but then, two pizzas like this arrived, right. <laughs> and we didn't want to, you know, you know we want, want to show... Didn't want to show the lady that right. uh, we couldn't eat. Right. So we eat it all. We drank a lot of water because we were oh, thirsty. <laughs> Afterwards, we drove to Gold's Gym to wait ourselves. Right. And that's when I hit the skill of 100 kilograms. So you always had pretty fast metabolism. It was always kind of hard to gain weight? No, it was not, not really not hard. hard. Okay. It was... It was um, but you always stayed lean, it seemed like. Yeah. yeah. And that's because of the fast met- metabolism. Yeah, yeah. Well, besides that, I'm... I'm we, we, we probably uh, come to that later. I'm, I'm, I'm a believer of not bulking up, you know, too heavy. Okay, okay. And, uh, yeah, that's... Now, uh, when, now, when you were along like this, Barry, what bodybuilders really inspired you? Was it Arnold, probably one of them, because yeah. he was tall and he was from Europe also? 
Arnold for all the reasons that we know for you know what he accomplished in the sport. Yeah. But Arnold Arnold is something else. Yeah. I mean, his whole character is his person and everything. That's, yeah. Uh, in in '83 was the first time that I met him. Okay. So that that's uh, that was like unbelievable. What was that like? You remember uh, what he was doing, or yeah, I think he just finished like filming for Conan the Barbarian yeah. around that yeah, time. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Uh, so he was he was actually uh, training with uh, Frank Columbo on the deck of World Gym okay. on Main Street there. Uh-huh. So um, well, you know, you see sometimes you see those uh, groupies, fan people like like just not saying that much and with the mouth open. Right. Oh, that's how I want. <laughs> <laughs> So did, was, you, did you go up to him and introduce yourself? And yes. Yeah. yeah. And he was nice and uh, yeah. And you know, I tried to explain uh, that I also won the European Championship. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I would imagine you know being from Europe and you're a young guy, tall guy, good looking, and you know he had a probably he probably like uh, took a liking to you right away, huh? Yeah. 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 That you know to go back to the the 1983 uh, universe. Mm-hmm. I became, or I took second place, and I still, if I rewind uh, the videotape, yeah. uh, Joe is holding our hands up, you know, and he just, uh, uh, my Christian was announced as a winner, yeah. and he is talking to me like, and I know exactly what he said. Yeah, what is that? <laughs> during the ceremony, when I took second place, he yeah. said, Barry. Come to California. I make you a star. <laughs> I will pay everything for you. Wow. <laughs> well, he didn't say uh, make a star yet, but he said, "Well, let's do photo shoot and yeah, all that." Yeah, so, yeah. So there was another moment in my life. Now, was that the first time you met Joe Weider? Eighty-four. No, eight, uh, that was eighty-three. Oh, eighty-three. Because okay. of my article in oh, the, I see. the the okay. champ. Yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. okay. And um, yeah, he he always uh, has been a. A lot of people say that, but he really always has been uh, father to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you went to uh, California in '83, when when was the next time you went there? Was it a couple of years later? Well, '84 uh, oh, because of yeah, Vegas, Vegas for, yeah. for photo shoots and everything. Okay. Then in '85, um, the Mr. Olympia was in Belgium. Was held in Belgium. And, you know, Belgian Holland, you know, they speak the same language. Yeah. So the promoter, Julian Bomar at the time, said, Barry, I'll get you a special invitation. Of course, I will attract, or you will, will sell more tickets, uh, mm-hmm. a lot of people said. And I was really stubborn. I'm, no, I was, I'm still. I'm still <laughs> <laughs> I really have bought, if I had, because Jürgen and me had a plan. Yeah. No, we have to be world champion, then turn pro. Right. So I was really, I was not, uh, you know, I was going, my plan was to go to win the world championship. But then the opportunity was there yeah. with the world games in 1985. Right. And right. it was about eight weeks, 12 weeks before the, uh, the Olympia 85. Okay. And um, I said, well, that's a good one. If I win that one, then, then I'm, a world, I'm, yeah. a world, I'm a world champion. Then I'm legally qualified. Right. And then I feel I belong there. Right, right. So in 85, now we're in 85, and... Uh, I learned from Mike Christian of the weight in in '84 that he kind of pumped up and oiled up for the weight in, oh, okay. just the weight in. So that's what I all copied from him in '85. Right. right. So, and probably Mike did the same thing, and I did as well. And with the weight in, we probably won the show already. Right. Right. So yeah. So '85, I won. Um, Matt Mendel was competing. Yeah. 
Mendenhall, who, who was a very, very good friend at the time, because he was also staying at Ed House. Oh, really? In, okay. In, in 83. So you met him back then? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So Ed Connors used to just bring people over, and they would just stay at his house and yeah. train at the gym and stuff. Huh? But if you look at history, it was not just people. Everybody that he picked, he was a, like a bodybuilding scout. Yeah, yeah. Everybody that he picked became a star. Right. And he didn't do anything. He only he didn't introduce us to Joe Weider. So the the career of those bodybuilders, they developed themselves. Right. But he he had the right eye for yeah, it. Yeah, he had a good eye yeah. for it. Yeah, yeah. You're like you're right. He was like a talent scout. Yeah. <laughs> so tell me about that '85 World Games because the the World Games for people that don't know. That was held every four years, right? That was kind of like an alternative to the Olympics. Exactly. So that was for like sports that weren't in the Olympic Games, but that were trying to get the Olympic Games. So it was a big deal for bodybuilding to be in there. And yeah. every, every four years it was held. So, yeah. And then if you won that, it was considered like winning the universe. It was the same kind of status, yeah. right? Yeah. 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 So there I won the show, and then I was like qualified in, 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 in the mind of my brother, Jurgen, and, and me, and I. Yeah, well, I was ready to go to go in the Olympia a couple of uh, months what did, later. What did you think of uh, Mendenhall when you competed against him? M- Mendenhall, talking about something with talent, somebody yeah. with talent. Yeah. Matt, Matt his his three D calves, his swipe on the the sweep on his legs, yeah. his waist. He got everything. Yeah. I mean, the only thing that he needed at that time to become a really really good champion with all. He needed a coach like me that I'm not now today. <laughs> right. So I, I, because, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Matt couldn't, he always had, like you said, he had this great genetics, but he just couldn't really nail his conditioning. It was yeah. always a little bit off, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's, well. And you were, you were great in that show. I mean, you were tan, you were ripped. I mean, it's yeah. like, yeah. out of the two universes in the World Games, I think the World Games was really your peak, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, you were best on all yeah. three, yeah. Every, every competition has like a, something extra to it. Yeah. Because you never guess who was in that show. Dorian. Dorian, <laughs> Dorian. Yeah, you Yeah, yeah. Did you notice him at all? Well, I noticed that this uh, this kid, uh, you know, was complete. Yeah. And he had a good, I mean, he was all proportioned very well. Right, right. And well, well he, and, and in the 90s, he set the new standard in the sport. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you get a chance to talk to him? Did he talk to you or anything? No, not really. No. no. Okay. Yeah, it was just uh, it was at Wembley Theater at the moment and at that time, and yeah. we just were in there, did our thing, and uh, yeah. Now I, I also remember at night I I couldn't sleep and I, I had my my medal on and just <laughs> walking in London for hours. Just, well, yeah. it, it happened. You know, right. It happened. All right, thanks for listening to this very special edition of the Bodybuilding Legends podcast, our fifth anniversary. We will be back next week with some more clips for our second part of our fifth anniversary uh, celebration. I want to thank all of you guys again for listening to the podcast and supporting it. I particularly want to thank all our Patreon donors who continue to support our show every week. We don't have any sponsors right now, so you guys are what is keeping the show going. So to show my support for all my Patreon donors, I'm giving them something special every week. I'm either sending them some clips that have not been shown yet on the Bodybuilding Legends podcast, or I am sending them some uh, articles, some old articles from the Bodybuilding magazines that I have. This is my way of saying thanks to all our Patreon donors who are helping to support the show. I appreciate you guys very much. 
But I want to thank all of you for supporting the Bodybuilding Legends podcast for the last five years. Let's keep it going. And we will be back next week for part two of our fifth anniversary special. In the meantime, guys, keep training hard. Stay safe out there. And we'll see you next week. Take care.